Hello, everyone. This is Mike from the West Coast Project Podcast. I am here to do the Making a Murderer feed for our new show. Uh, I'm doing this show by myself. I'm changing up the format a little bit. Uh, my girls, my beautiful, smart partners in West Coast Project, Michelle and Jamie, have other obligations and couldn't help with this particular show. So uh, it would have been a lot better with their participation, but for various reasons they can't. So I'm, I'm going to offer up a simpler version where I recap the show in kind of a live watch format. So bear with me if the timing is a little different than our normal podcasts, and uh, we'll see how it works out. So just a couple notes about the podcast. I wanted to do this podcast the minute I saw the show. I think the show came out on... December 18th, right before Christmas. So it hasn't been out very long. There weren't very many podcasts about it. Um, my friends are telling me it's a difficult show to podcast, but uh, I don't think so. I think there's a lot to talk about, and I certainly have some strong opinions on it. So first of all, the name of this feed, Bombfire, uh, if you'll recall, that is the name uh, sorry, that's the name given by Brandon Dassey to a bonfire party that he was going to. He misspokenly called it Bombfire, and I thought that was a, an interesting name. So, and it was kind of a was kind of a situation that all went down in flames for everyone. So, Bombfire kind of fits the theme of this podcast. I started to list the people that I liked as I was watching the show, anticipating doing this podcast. Um, and I have a number of people that I liked and a lot more people that I disliked, but um, we'll get into that as we go through each episode. There are only a couple of people that stand out as likable people, um, and, and actually, you might call Stephen Avery one of those people. He seems kind of maybe sympathetic more than likable, but uh, he falls kind of in that middle ground. I don't really dislike Stephen Avery so much. I just felt sorry for the guy. He's really kind of a loser guy and didn't really know how to defend himself. Um, and he had such a poor start in life and had what looked like some resolution and redemption and had that stripped away and taken away from him. And now he it appears to be in even a worse situation than before. So um, I'm going to talk about people I liked and disliked and pitied. Um, easy to pity people in this show. And it's it's actually a very strong comment on the way that society uh, treats people that aren't able to defend themselves. These, these cops all in the show seemed really power hungry. They seemed really um, intent on shoring up their defense of their situation to keep everything status quo and to keep themselves out of trouble at, at any cost. And they certainly took advantage of people that weren't smart enough to defend themselves or didn't have resources enough to defend themselves. Um, so with that, let's start the first episode. There are 10 episodes in the series, and we'll go through them one by one on 10 different episodes of Bombfire. So here's Bombfire 101 for the first episode. One thing I noticed on my rewatch is that these episodes are titled. Um, episode one is entitled 18 Years Lost. And I found myself noticing more and more during the second watch of this series. Um, you probably remember the series starts out with Stephen coming home from prison. Uh, he looks like a cheerful, still relatively young man. He's got this gruesome, grotesque beard uh, and his head shaved. So he looks a little ridiculous to start with. But he just seems super happy meeting his family. Um, his family has has this undying support for this guy. 
they always believed in him, and his parents especially never gave up on him. So he's hugging his family, his, his people that were close to him, and we learn the story about Stephen Avery in his first, um, his first bout in prison, 18 years in prison for rape. We start to see the people that had been involved in that early case, uh, Sheriff Tom Kuchorek, um, and here's where the list of hating starts. <laughs> we start to hate people, or I do anyway, people that just put this guy away um, because he seemed absolutely like an easy target and a dislikable person and a family that maybe nobody in this town liked. But this first scene, um, oddly enough, September 11th, 2003, uh, he's just greeted by his family in the simplest way, hugs. There's some news media, cameras people drinking beer and just kind of celebrating that this guy's back back together with the family. We also learn a lot about Manitowoc, this, this city in, in northern Wisconsin up on the western shores of Lake Michigan. It's a for, forlorn town. It just seems so desolate and cold and just kind of a depressing place. I'm sure the show didn't add to the Chamber of Commerce's um, reputation here with the city of Manitowoc. But um, it just looks like a very bleak place, and the story, of course, makes it um, adds its own bleakness to the to the city of Manitowoc. So these first scenes, we see Stephen Avery's home and his city, uh, school buses, the junkyard, the uh, the lake, the harbor, uh, and the people the people that have their simple lives in this small town in the Midwest, this cold, cold ass small town in the Midwest. I didn't know what to think when I first saw this show for the first time, but I, I remember being caught up in the story almost immediately. Uh, it was very easy to binge this show and get into each episode, and, and hard to stop watching each episode. Okay, so episode one now, they're going back to the courthouse. Apparently it took about a year to get him out of trouble when the DNA evidence came through. He got, he got his, uh, his, his court case reversed. They talk about how police and uh, public officials are immune from prosecution unless there's purposeful uh, deceit or purposeful aggress aggressive prosecution. And uh, Stephen's cleaned up now. He looks actually like a pretty, f pretty normal-looking young man. He's got a he's got a goatee and a beard, but he's not anything like the the wild Santa Claus-looking uh, facial hair and beard that he has when he first comes out of jail. So they're trying to nail these cops for obstruction of justice and throwing him in jail for this crime he didn't, apparently didn't commit as he was exonerated by the DNA. And we see the media covering this on the steps of the Manitowoc courthouse. We see some of the players for the first time. Gene Couchet looks like a relatively young version of Gene Couchet and Tom Kuchorek. Very hateable characters that we start, once we see them in latter versions or later times in this episode, very easy to hate these guys. So 1985, that was the sheriff's department. We also start to hear from Sandra Morris, Stephen's cousin. You remember her from the first episode? She was the drab, dreary-looking woman who uh, claimed that Stephen was masturbating in front of her and being sexually explicit in front of her, indecent exposure, and running after her with a gun. She just looks miserable and hateful 
this that's the general theme of all the characters in this show. These people too, when they speak and and testify in court, they are s- so less than eloquent. They have such simple statements. They don't know very much vocabulary, and they just seem so full of s- spite and hatred. So who knows if this was true? Maybe it was true. Maybe he did do this in front of her and chase her with the run out on the road with a gun and threaten her. But it just seems like people are accusing other people hatefully, spitefully, without really. A, they're not really after justice. They're just after expressions of hate and maybe some sort of revenge. Uh, but I didn't like this woman. I didn't like this uh, cousin of Stevens testifying, testifying against him and just. Defaming his character, I guess, is what was happening in this in this second trial to uh, try to earn Stephen the thirty-five million. And they're always uh, they're talking about the taverns that they hang out in. They show the town and the taverns. Just again, it looks so bleak. It looks like nothing else to do. And if you put yourself in their situation, if you're in this town, hanging out all day in the middle of the day in a tavern, it just seems such a hellscape. It's just so miserable. Uh, so right away, this theme is set that this is this is going to be a dreary ride. This uh, this town of Manitowoc and these characters and this this sad revolving play of a humanity trying to figure out who did what and maybe get a little bit of remuneration for Stephen's time that he spent and maybe a little bit of justice. Um, but they sure portray this town as a, as a dreary place. We see some pictures of the young Steve Avery. Growing up, his cousin Dim Ducat is another witness or another character in the show. She's fond of Stephen. She remembers him as a happy person, always laughing and always quick to find a, a cheerful part of any situation. The town hated the people. the The town hated these Averys. The town hated the Averys. That's um, pretty clear right away. They have their own junkyard on Avery Road. It's at the dead end of a country country lane with a dirt road. They weren't involved in any community service. Um, Stephen's lawyer, another of his lawyers, Risa Evans, remembers this about them, um, that they kind of kept to themselves at the end of the dirt road in their, in their salvage business, and they were not a part of the Manitowoc community. Uh, Stephen recalls growing up with the junkyard and the cars and how it was fun running around fixing them, going through the trails and the rows of cars as, as a boy. How they would take them apart, take the motors out, salvage the parts. They they take the simplest things out of the cars just to have pleasure. They'd put they'd hook up a battery to a car radio to have music. And uh, he recalls this as a as a nice childhood. And it probably was if he didn't know any better, and and maybe didn't need to know any better. It was just a family that was close, and he seemed happy within that family. The next guy we meet in the episode here is Fred Hazelwood, the first judge. We see some of Stephen's criminal background, a couple burglaries, breaking into a like a bait shop through a broken window and stealing $15 worth of quarters and two six-packs of Budweiser. Just ridiculous, ridiculously cheap stuff to build up this criminal background. Um, and he, he admits it, that he admits that these were mistakes. Um, and that's the other thing I took from this episode and, and then ultimately the series is Stephen Avery seemed like an honest person. 
Um, even to the point here, he's, he's talking about the cat, which may be the most demeaning thing or the most uh, incriminating thing to his to his personality is that he cruelly threw this cat into a fire. And he admits it. Doesn't try to color code it. Doesn't try to not say anything about it or say it with somebody else. He owns up to it and tells us, tells the interviewer that he actually did this stuff. So he's getting in trouble at a pretty young age for pretty silly stuff. At 19, 18, 19, he's doing these burglaries for $14, $15 and a couple six-packs of beer. We learn about his first girlfriend at 19. This woman had a baby and and the father was not involved in her life. So Stephen met her at 19. He says, I might as well give it a shot. So he gets married in 1982 at the age of 19. And they had a wedding, a wedding party in the garage. And, of course, Lori, this is Lori, his first wife. They look a little drunk and hung over at the wedding in the garage. So they look like they're happy, though, in this, in this simple, simple Manitowoc theme. Um, and they raised this little boy who's got a little puppy on his lap. So he's got his little family built. Even at the young age of 19, it seems like he's trying to do the right thing. Or maybe it was a girl. Sorry, it's his little daughter, Jenny. Um, her daughter from another man, but his family now. And then the trouble starts. So we meet Stephen's father, Alan Avery. Uh, again, very staunch supporter of Stephen. Um, he says the Morris family picked on Stephen and uh, didn't treat him fairly. This is another guy, I've got to say that I liked, Stephen's father. Uh, so we jump back and forth here to this testimony from Sandra, Sandra Morris's cousin, um, who does not like Stephen at all. So he talks about this interaction with his cousin. Uh, I think this is the point that we're trying to make that where he, he was accused of running her off the road. She, he claims it was snowy. She ran off the road herself. And when he saw that, he went out and jumped out and went to the car with a gun. He's doing this in testimony in court, um, and he's being accused of running her off the road and pointing a gun. And, and he admits it, again, that she was spreading rumors about him that were not true, that he was naked and, and masturbating and treating her wrongly. So he admits what he did was wrong, that he should not have done what he did. And I think that tells me that if he had done wrong later in this in his life, he would have admitted to it as well. And the first problem with all of this is that Sandra Morris is married to somebody in the police department. So they immediately enlist this person that she has in the police department, apparently it's her husband, to get the dope on Stephen and get him in trouble, get him in trouble for probably more trouble than he deserved for this simple act of anger. So they talk about Stephen's IQ, 70. Again, not very high, but again, he seems like a reasonable, normal person to me anyway at this point in the series. And he claims he didn't do what she thought she saw him doing, masturbating in the middle of winter in the middle of the road. They can't seem to pin down why she would make this rumor up about him uh, with the only explanation that maybe she's being married to law enforcement could get him into some kind of trouble. But it really doesn't make much sense. There's a lot about this show that doesn't make sense and we're kind of left to wonder about. But the, the point they try to make in this first episode is that this is a good way to impugn the entire Avery family that nobody seems to like. As being undesirable members of the community, they can get them in trouble by getting one of them in trouble. And this crime is a felony. 
This is not small time stuff. So he is charged with endangering the safety of a person and a felon in possession of a firearm. So this is a slippery slope he's on now that's just not ever gonna let up for this poor guy's life. His first picture's from the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. He's a young boy, he's 19, he's a boy. Um, and he just looks, he's just caught in the system now, he's caught in the trap. So we go into the, we go into a little bit more about Stephen's life. They start showing some, some of his, some of his family's pictures. Uh, his wife gives birth to twins. Uh, while Stephen's caught up in this legal problem and in jail, she has twins. And he looks happy. He looks happy holding these baby twin boys with his wife. Proud to be a father. And, you know, look, if this guy did this stuff, if he really hurt this Teresa Schlaubach, um, then, he, then he deserves what he has. But I, I don't know. I, I think I want to believe in the in this sympathetic character that this guy seems to be. That he's a good soul who got kind of trapped in this bullshit. And these people just threw everything they had against him. And, um, and he, couldn't, he couldn't fight back. So we start to hear now about Penny Burnson. This is the woman that he was ac accused of raping. She was jogging along the lake, Lake Michigan, in the summer of 1985. 85 degrees on the beach, and she passed a man with a black jacket. So that doesn't add up. That's suspicious. And he appears to follow her and take, <clears throat> take a course that follows her across this path. Or in, in, She runs into the water of Lake Michigan, and he grabs her and takes her into the woods. And... Um, and has this crime, he rapes her. And this guy um, beats her up, too. He doesn't just try to rape her, he beats her up, and they show her bruises. And She has a couple black eyes. It's bad. It's really bad. This woman gets beaten up by this man. Um, so people, people thinking it's Stephen, it, it makes him super easy to hate right off the bat. If you don't know any better and you think he did it, he's convicted of it, you, you hate the guy. He's just it's an evil act. So right away, when this woman, Penny Burnson, describes her assaulter, her assailant, people right away say, oh, that's Stephen Avery. Again, they point the long arm of justice right at this guy because he's an easy target. Um, now, Stephen has people on the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department, too. His uncle is on the uh, Sheriff's Department. But the, but the odds of the people, the number of people that just indicate guilt towards Stephen is greater than the family, the Avery family, can overcome. There's a deputy, Judy Dvorak, is the first one to start accusing Stephen or saying this sounds like Stephen without really the evidence to back it up. And then in this, in this 2005 trial to try to get some retribution for Stephen for being wrongly incriminated, she conveni conveniently doesn't remember saying anything that is incriminating towards her. So this is where this is where we get really creepy and hateful people uh, just conspiring to hurt this guy. This Gene Couchet guy is maybe the most hateable person um, in this in this early part of this series. He's the guy that takes the picture of Stephen from the from his earlier booking and puts it together with the drawing and makes a collage out of it, like a montage out of it, and and proudly hangs it in his office. So they show Penny Bernstein these pictures of lineup, lineups with men, and Stephen's in the middle, and she's the, he's the only one she's ever seen before, so she picks him out, and the police are telling her all along that they think it's him. 
So he's framed. He's set up to be nothing but guilty by these uh, police employees. So this is where this guy, Gene Couchet, frames the, the artist rendering with the photos of Stephen Avery. Because he thought it would make an interesting keepsake of the trial to display in his office. Literally framing him. Literally framing him in his face with the crime that he wants him to be found guilty of. And this guy's total smarm in this 1985, sorry, in this 2005 trial, retrial, or, or investigation about the corruption of these officers, this guy is smarmy and slippery and just disgusting. He's carefully constructing his sentences and words under oath to keep himself out of trouble, and he's condescendingly talking to the lawyers, and just this, uh, this guy's so hateable. So Stephen... Stephen's lawyers, all along, all the way through this, Stephen has some pretty good lawyers. He, uh, they find out that he took one, this, this artist, this, this Couchet, took the, took one of Stephen's older criminal pictures, photographs, and drew, a, essentially sketched over it and made a sketch of that photograph and presented that to Penny Bernstein. And that he framed along with Stephen's current pictures, and that's how he got nailed for this crime, this rape of Penny Bernstein. And Stephen relates and in, in remembering that this is the, then the then the sheriffs were claiming we got you now. So again, he just seems like a super targeted person in this whole series. Also, when Stephen was put in jail, this sheriff Kuchorek did not allow him any calls did not have him on the list of people in the jail, so nobody knew he was in jail. His wife had to call his lawyer to tell her that he was missing and he may be in jail. So nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew how to go and help him in jail. Um, so they, got, they get this guy. They keep him in jail. They keep him isolated, and then they just start to build this crime up against him. So he's a little bit farther down the slippery slope now. And, of course, this terrible crime to Penny Bernstein makes the community glad that they have somebody that looks like he might be the perpetrator. Um, and this family that's been painted in such a bleak, evil eye by the, by the rest of the townspeople... You know, man, I, I know I sound like a total apologist for this guy, but it just seems so wrong the way that this, this slippery slope has started. This show, the Bernstein family, and how they have a little shop, a little candy and lunches and ice cream shop. I mean, it's, it's Norman Rockwell in this little town. Smiling husband, little family of kids, successful little business. He's his husband runs the YMCA. You know, the wife's a beautiful, doting mother. And they needed to solve this crime. They couldn't have this woman get assaulted and not have some justice. So that added into, I think, the quick descent of Stephen in this in this situation with the first stint in prison. His family st continues to stand up for him. Uh, back then, they remember that, you know, he, this this is a kid getting in trouble for stealing fourteen dollars, not for going around raping and beating up people. So it didn't fit his character, and they. Uh, they remember that about him, and they recall that in this uh, this 2005 situation. We talked to Mike Kinzel, a news reporter. He remembers he remembers the details coming from the sheriff's department that they uh, that that was the source of the news, the sheriff's department and the district attorney. So everything they wanted to charge him with fit 
their narrative, because that was the only narrative, the police side was the narrative about who was who was being accused and why he was probably the right person and probably guilty. The judge, this first judge, also kind of hateable, Fred Hazelwood, had pre, you know, this justice is blind theory of justice that we have was not in play in this case because this judge had the opinion that he was he was a violent person that perpetrated acts against women uh he believed all this stuff that the police were saying or he created some of it himself even uh so it was a it was a bad situation and meanwhile now they they show us gregory allen a, a guy who did have real crimes in his background he was in the manitowoc area and while Stephen was in jail, this guy was running around free. This is the guy that they've found that ultimately did commit the crime against Mrs. Bernstein. So we also have the situation of the Manitowoc Police Department and the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. Kind of at odds with some of this. One, at one point, one of the police, Manitowoc police, tell the Sheriff's Department that they may have the right person, you know, this other guy... And they tell him, don't worry about it. We've got the right man already, so don't even bother pursuing this. And they insisted, this police department told, even the district attorney told him that they think that the wrong person, you know, that Stephen Avery's the wrong person and Alan, this other guy, is the right person that they should be pursuing. So we get the parents again, the staunch father, it's just, just beleaguered guy, man. He's sitting in his chair powerless to do anything, but he has strong, strong opinions and strong defensive feelings towards his son and the mother. I mean, the mother and father here are just some of the saddest characters in the show. They're, they're proud, almost proud parents and, and sad and just beaten up by this whole situation, but they never cease to believe in their son. So they show the trail of the day of the crime from Penny Bernstein's rape. Stephen starts at one point in the at at his parents' house, at the or not the parents' house, but the salvage yard, working, pouring cement, doing some work at the salvage yard. Then the attack of Penny is on the beach. It, it, they make the timeline pretty clear that it would be very difficult for Stephen to accomplish this crime and to. Uh, do everything he's, he's done with witnesses backing him up and supporting his locations and time, it would be very difficult for Stephen to have a perpetrated this attack on Penny. The other thing about Stephen is it seems like he's a really hard worker. He's working all the time. I mean, he's doing crap jobs. He's going to the car wash. He's going to do laundry. He's taking apart cars in a junkyard. But he's doing. He's working. He's not screwing around. He's not sitting in a bar somewhere getting drunk. He's he's actually working. He's got a family. He's taking them to do their laundry and do and to get dinner at the Burger King and this kind of stuff. But he's doing stuff that witnesses can back up and create this timeline for him that that vilifies him from this actual crime. Um, but of course, it doesn't work. We need the actual DNA later to to get him off the hook. Penny Bernstein talks about her situation, uh, talking about the man that attacked her and how he threatened to kill her. She's likable. Penny Bernstein is super likable in this. She's a victim, and then she's and then she's human. She's forgiving of Stephen when she finds out that he was wrongly accused and convicted. And she feels bad. She's She was the victim, but she feels bad that he suffered for something he didn't do. But her... 
it's actually kind of sad that her clean cut, perfect reputation added to the slippery slope that Stephen was on, which got him sent up for this crime. So we see these old shots of Stephen in the courtroom for this rape trial, his first his first conviction for the 18 years. And he's a boy. He just looks terrified, sitting in his orange jumpsuit, and he's, he's just looking down. He's on the brink of tears, he's terrified. I mean, what what do you do? You have no you have no way of proving. Nobody will listen to you, and you know you're in the right. It's got to be horrible. And this, this reflects in through his parents again. They, they do a lot of interviewing of the parents in this first episode. Um, this poor peasant family, just, just poor, poor family. Uh, they're in their kitchen wearing their winter jackets, and it just looks cold, and they look impoverished and sad, and uh, it's just bleak. So at the time, at age 23, Stevens convicted to 32 years in the state prison, the Green Bay Correctional Institution. Essentially in his backyard, Green Bay is not far from Manitowoc. Um, so we see shots of the prison and his first lawyer comes back on, Risa Evans, and says, basically, if you, didn't, if you don't admit your guilt on your parole hearings, you'll, you will never get paroled. And Stephen, again, his honest streak kind of hurts him here. He never admits his guilt because he wasn't guilty, and so he never got paroled. And he even makes the statements, I would rather do the punishment than tell a lie and, and, and admit to something I did not do. And he has this resolve that just, uh, it, it, makes it, it makes it hard to believe he has this resolve early in his life and then would not have it later on. In, in this situation with uh, Teresa Halbach. So we, we hear the, the mother and father talking about Stephen often, and it's the father talking more. The mother, Dolores, has not even spoken, I don't think, yet up, up to this point. But the father talks about how Dolores would take the kids to visit Stevie in the uh, prison, in the jail, his three kids, the twins and the first, the first baby. And he was in a few places. He was in Green Bay. He was in some place in Tennessee. She would drive on the roads. Even and Here's where she starts speaking. She starts relating her experience. She would drive them all on the roads, even if it was icy, no matter which prison, no matter when, so that the kids could see their father and for, for Stephen to see his kids. So Stephen recalls his situation with his first wife, with Lori. They were fighting. She can't ha handle the kids. She was going to commit suicide and probably hurt the kids and um, he wrote back to her that 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 he would hurt her if she did that essentially so he was I'm sure he was just tortured um, and they ended up getting divorced in a very hateful hateful situation I mean and who, who could not under how, how can you have trouble understanding that with the situation he's in jail she has all these kids probably no money and he has this child he has, he has these childishly written notes that they show in the in their recap here and she takes the kids away and you know here he is still in jail in Green Bay and he has this challenge now is to keep occupied to, to keep how to figure out how to keep going without going insane so he thinks about working on cars and painting and and he describes his day. You sit in your room all day. You take a shower and you sit in your room in jail. We met a few other people in Stephen's life here. Yvonne Tuss, his, his aunt, she recalls how well his parents stuck behind him and visited him 
visited him. How they spent every dime they had to try to get him out of prison and help with his appeals. And his appeals did go all the way up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and every one of them was denied. So we do meet a lot of people. Stephen Glynn is the next lawyer, um, and they are the lawyers in the 90s, the mid-90s, that agree to review Stephen's case. And so they review the evidence and the testimony and had to come up with new evidence to show there was a reason to review it again and give it another trial. So they would go to the courthouse and find boxes and boxes of statements and samples. So they eventually they come upon the sex crime kit, and uh, this sex crime has fingernail scrapings and pubic hair and blood blood samples, blood stains. So they eventually get the, the evidence retested. And at this time, in 1985, they have a DNA enhancement procedure, and uh, they use the term alleles. Apparently, this is something newly discovered in the technology of DNA at the time, that every person has two alleles, and then they find an extra allele in the criminal evidence. Uh, one of them who did not match, one of the alleles does not match either Stephen or uh, Penny, and that the lawyers then argue that a jury should know this, should have known this, and that that third piece of, that third allele, that third fragment of evidence should have been presented to the jury. And that's how they, that's the DNA that they use to find this this other guy. So they they have to still overcome this Fred Hazelwood guy who's just bent on keeping this guy where he is in jail. They don't know yet who, who this DNA belongs to, so they, they just know it's a third person. But the lawyers are smart. The lawyers remind everybody that this is evidence from underneath Penny's fingernails. She scratched her perpetrator, her, her attacker. So it wasn't her husband. It wasn't like one of the firemen or the rescue EMTs that helped her. It was one of the it was evidence from the perpetrator. And of course, Hazelwood, <clears throat> Hazelwood doesn't want to allow this new stuff to reach the court of appeals. So at this point, Stephen's been in jail for 12 years, like 90, 1997. The lawyers, this first set of lawyers for Stephen are portraying his family growing up. The kids are growing up. The mom and dad are getting older. And how the pressure, all this pressure on the other people in Stephen's family, maybe it's worth it. Maybe, you know, they, they consider that maybe it's worth it. That since they've tried everything else to get Stephen out, maybe just admit it. Just just wrongly admit it and get paroled. They they consider that. They put that on the table for us to consider. And their point is that even if Stephen admitted this, or had Stephen admitted this, he would have been likely paroled. But he didn't. He did not ever admit to this crime that he didn't do. He would not lie about it, even at the cost of being apart from his family and the suffering his family had to go through. So we see his mom now. She's she's unboxing a bunch of stuff that at the time, this task, this Sisyphusian task of hers, which was just sending, copying stuff and sending it to people. And she's got mountains of paperwork. She talks about how in 1998, she sent transcripts to everybody. She made 10 copies, which for this woman... You know, she's not going off to Kinko's. She's uh, She's got a little copy machine of some kind in her poor-ass living room or kitchen. And she makes 10 copies and collates everything. And, you know, she's probably struggling with technology. This isn't 
2015 with everybody having used a printer and a computer a hundred times. She's she's a rural woman in a cheap, rundown, poverty-stricken Manitowoc. She's probably never seen a copier before. And she makes these copies, and she makes 10 copies of everything and sends it all off to people, 60 minutes and 2020, to help her son, to help Stephen with his case, just for, for the truth to come out, just get some momentum going to help his story be, be to come under the light of more more reasonable eyes than this than this mountain of monstrous machine of police that are that are in the Manitowoc area. But they come back. These transcripts come back. She still has them. There's they're in crates, cardboard boxes in her kitchen. She's showing them on the in the show. Sad. Super super sad, man. And meanwhile, remember, twelve years now, Stevens in prison, twelve years. And uh, think about that. Twelve years for something you didn't do. They show his prison. They show some of the letters, his, his mother writing to people. Um, eventually, she finds the Innocence Project, the Wisconsin Innocence Project in 2001, and they take on Stephen's case. So we learn about another guy now, uh, the founder of the, of the Innocence Project, Keith Findlay, I think his name is his name. So they go through the evidence again, evidence from 1985. So then they find through the pubic hairs that one of the pubic hairs was from the victim, Penny. And one last remaining pubic hair was not from Penny. And that, that pubic hair was not from Stephen Avery. And from that hair, you can get a complete DNA profile. So I misspoke earlier when I said this, the fingernail scraping. So it was, it was apparently this was the DNA. Because the DNA that they got from this pubic hair matched Gregory Allen. So it wasn't enough to know that the third party was not Stephen. They had to actually match the third party to a real person. And, that, and this is eventually what gets Stephen out. So as we come full circle here in episode one, this is back to Stephen's release from, from prison and his re, reuniting with his family and his smiling, laughing Santa Claus beard. Uh, funny, looking, funny looking at this time. This is uh, 2003. He's got the Santa Claus beard and the buzzed hair cut. So he looks, he looks pretty funny, but he looks very, very happy. And we, sh we see his route, his route from the prison back home to the Avery Salvage Yard, down past the dead end sign, the ironically positioned dead end sign. Um, and then the house with the cameras again and the people just celebrating. And the cheerful Stephen feels wonderful to be free, hugging, hugging people with tears. And, and all these people that have decided to back him and stay with him and, and be his be his home base, be his, be his base of uh, people who believed in him. Um, they celebrate with him. Stephen actually forgives Penny at this point for making a mistake and um, makes the statement that he thinks that most of the evidence that she portrayed against him was put in her mind by the police. It was pretty, probably pretty accurate. So Stephen's hugging a happy little baby. I don't know who all these people are, but this is, again, this is September 11th, 2003. 
So this has set the stage for the slope to become a crevasse. <laughs> Uh, of course, now the prosecution team and the police and the judge and everybody else, the district attorney, are essentially on the brink of being in some pretty huge trouble. If they can prove that they were railroading this guy, then they would be in pretty big trouble. This isn't just a mistake. This is like purposeful misconduct to portray something that uh, something inaccurately to get somebody in trouble. And there's email, show emails going back and forth that nobody's supposed to talk about anything to anybody. So some of these people have left office at this point. Uh, the district attorney, Dennis Vogel, is gone at this point. I think Kucherik is gone at this point, the guy with the drawings. And then so the people, the people on Stephen's team tell these guys that have now since left office, you know, the truth has come out. The DNA has kind of exonerated him. And he, they, they express surprise that instead of saying, "Oh my God, thank, it's good news that we caught the right person," they uh, don't express that. That they just that they they were disappointed. They were disappointed that the the situation with Stephen Avery was changing. And they find more and more. They find that Gregory Allen is not a mysterious person that they knew about. Gregory Allen, these these prosecutors and police and. He had done other sexual crimes. He had exposed himself to females and in the same area of the beach where Penny was attacked. And, of course, we have to remember that this guy was out all the time that Stephen was in jail. This guy was out running around doing whatever other horrible crimes he wanted to do. So the DA and the sheriff should have known this, probably did know this, and still kept it quiet in order to get this guy Stephen that they wanted back in, or back into jail to get, to keep him in trouble and to keep the truth away from the, the light of day. Bad stuff. Bad stuff for these guys. If they can prove this, it's worth a lot of money to Stephen and it's worth some big trouble to the people on the on the legal end. So at this point the Wisconsin Wisconsin Attorney General orders an investigation of the police department. So they have a special agent on the stand who talks about her her investigation of the police. This is May of twenty of two thousand five, and her job is to investigate misconduct by the police. Uh, they actually talked to a couple of people from the Department of Justice doing this. A lot of names going back and forth. There, Deborah Strauss is one of these people. They interview everybody that they can that's related to the case. So this law enforcement gang has to hunker down. They know. This is public, all this stuff, all this investigation, all these reviews, all this looking into what happened, this miscarriage of justice. It's all public. It's all in the newspapers. Um, so they got to hunker down. They got to figure a way to counter this. And even the media, there are people from the Milwaukee County or Milwaukee Journal, Sentinel, uh, or whatever the hell the paper is, talking about what, how, how all this stuff was not reported or reported inaccurately and how Gregory Allen was probably a good person to have as a suspicious party party to this crime and how it was ignored and um so the the evidence is mounting it's public and just now it's looking good for Stephen that he has this he has this uh this crime that he's been wrongly accused at and and the people doing it appear to be pretty guilty, pretty pretty easy to prosecute, pretty easy to catch at doing this 
a miscarriage of justice. Even Penny Bernstein asked about Gregory Allen at the time. And they told her not to worry about it, that they, they had the right man all the time. So now the lawyers, you know, now this is really building that while really the worst thing here is this other guy, Allen, being out and running around while the police department's protecting itself from this miscarriage of justice. And so we talked to a couple victims. <laughs> Jesus, man. We talked to a couple people, people that were victimized by Gregory Allen. One woman um, was attacked. She, he was broke into her home and assaulted her. This woman's identity is concealed in the, in the show. But she's pretty brave to speak out about this. And this was uh, Gregory Allen. So he gets caught. He's 47 when he gets caught. And he gets put in jail, not for life, but for some extended period of time. Probably beyond his expected lifetime. So these investigators from Department of Justice, Internal Affairs, um, find out about all this. They find out that the this Allen guy could have been easily revealed to be a potential suspect, but he wasn't. And Allen's photo was never shown to Penny Bernstein, so she could maybe identify him. And these investigators testify now that the sheriff's department never really did an investigation. What they did was build a case against Stephen Avery. And they testify to this in court or in some sort of a hearing. They, they make this public. This, this is officially on the record now that these guys who convicted Stephen uh, were only there to convict him and not to find the real truth behind these crimes. And the, the people doing this investigation, internal affairs people doing this investigation, actually said they found out that the sheriff told the district attorney not to screw this up to convict Stephen, that everything was teed up for him to go to prison. And so it was pretty, they were in trouble. They had all this now, they had all this stuff in Stephen's favor. It looks like he's ready to at least be exonerated and at best maybe have some assets, some resources from this lawsuit. And that these guys who did this stuff the wrong way in the police department and the prosecutor's office would probably at least get you know, some justice thrown their way. But they get off. There's no, there's no wrongdoing. They find that there's no wrongdoing. The real person in charge of this, uh, the, the top head of this investigation is Peg Lautenschlager, something like that. She's the Wisconsin district attorney. Uh, and she claimed there was no wrongdoing, even with all this evidence against the prosecutors and police, that there is no wrongdoing. So that the worst thing that they did was fail to recognize that Allen might have been a suspect. So they get, they get cleared by their... Justice Department. Essentially, essentially, the Justice Department said that they made some mistakes, but they had good intentions, and that nothing was intentional. So he's not. Stephen's not going to see them suffer for being caught at this the right way. <laughs> that they did something wrong to put the wrong man in jail. So what he does is he brings a lawsuit to. Uh, to get justice that way, nobody was going to, nobody was ever going to accept a responsibility for it the right way. And maybe that's a hard thing to do by humans to admit they were wrong and admit they did something criminal and lose their job and defame their families and all that. But but they were, uh, you know, they had to 
they had to pay some way. And, and so this guy, Stephen, brings the lawsuit. And the lawsuit is for a million dollars for every year in jail. So 18. I get up to 36. So this is where his relatives start to fear again for Stephen that maybe this isn't a great idea. They're not going to just let him get away with it. They're not just going to hand over the money. And they try to intimidate them that, this, that your family's privacy will be put out on display for everybody in the public to see. I don't think they ever thought that he really had to be careful about bringing a lawsuit against the sheriff's department. Um, but he certainly should have thought about that because this is what, of course, this whole series is about. So near the end of this episode one, we hear about the body. Do we have a body? And that, of course, is Teresa Halbach. And um, the, the way that episode one ends is, do we have Stephen Avery in custody yet? So, and I'm sure there's some, there's some creation here by the editors of the show to make it look dramatic that the, uh, that the setup is in play here for, for Stephen to be in trouble now for bringing this lawsuit. Um, I, I do agree that this show is made such that it, it's set up to make Stephen look innocent and a victim. Um, and maybe he's not such a victim, and maybe he did commit this crime, but this second crime. But I want to believe that he didn't. And from everything I've said in the beginning parts of this episode one, the way that he stuck to the truth, I don't see him changing. I don't see him changing in latter episodes and latter parts of his life just to uh, to cover up a crime. But uh, I might be wrong. So that's it for episode 101 of Making a Murder on the West Coast Project podcast. I'm going to edit this and see how it sounds because without my helpers, I'm not, um, not that confident that it's coming across super well. And I know I've, uh, I've had some lags as I've, I've kind of watched and re- re-listened and got the facts again about the, about the episode during the rewatch. But um, we'll see how it goes. I'll see how it turns out. And uh, next time we'll see you on episode 102. Uh, 102 is entitled Turning the Tables, Season 1, Episode 2 of Making a Murderer on the West Coast Project podcast.